I think um, <clears throat> one of the hindrances that people speak about, and I know f for myself, to opening to the love that we are. See if this has resonance for you, is that people get afraid that they might really, really, really love. They might find a lot of love in their heart. And that might overwhelm them or someone else. get afraid just of how much we love. So sometimes when Rob was speaking last night and one of the fears around emptiness being the association with annihilation that can also exist for love too. Do you ever have, have you ever had the experience of coming into contact with someone really loving? I remember um, there was this beautiful Thai master, really old, like 90 something, and at the temple, and I could feel myself really drawn. It's like, wow. Could just, he was, wasn't saying anything, he wasn't doing anything, he was just sort of radiating. And, effortlessly his love I was drawn and as I got about 20 meters away it was like oh that's near enough <laughs> that's near enough what's that about well if I get closer you know you can have all my rationale but in a way I'm afraid I necessarily call it annihilation but of dissolving That the me that I know, that knows how to hold it together and do what I do and not know how to do certain things, that that's in danger in a certain way. And it is. The historical self, the way we know ourselves, actually is <laughs> in danger. It's a good kind of danger. So... This evening I'd like to reflect a little bit on um, holding our self dear. Holding our self dear. And Rob mentioned this morning the uh, trailer for tonight was also working with difficulties. And there's a little bit about that. But we, after the interviews, realized that may not be the most up thing right now. We can get to that. There'll be difficulties, for sure. But you'll have experience and will gain more. So I want to reflect on holding, your, holding yourself dear. <clears throat> First, I want you to reflect on what happens when I use those words. Holding yourself dear. There's, you like the idea, you resonate with the idea, you know its power. Could be resistance arise. Might be like, I don't know how to do that. Many responses. <clears throat> There's a quote actually from the Buddha, which is um, a slightly poetic translation, I think, but fits very well, where he says, because you hold yourself dear, you maintain careful self-regard both day and night. Because you hold yourself dear, you maintain careful self-regard day and night. There's a way of saying our mindfulness practice, our practice of attention, coming out of the fact that we care. We care for this one somehow. Holding yourself dear. So there's a quality of holding in it. A love that can actually hold. It's not, it's not only the tender. Tender part is very important. 
there's the tender aspect that has a capacity to hold, actually holding ourselves, holding yourself dear. How do you like that word dear? I used to hate it. Dear. Now I love it. Dear. Dear, how would it be to wake yourself up in the morning here? Good morning, dear. Good morning, dear. Talking to yourself, it's fine. We're doing it anyway internally, and it's not usually as kind as that. All right, say it out loud if you like. Good morning, dear. Dear, dear one. Beloved. Actually, last week I was on a course, a different kind of course, and my roommate, a very lovely woman, she's Dutch, and um, she, I heard her talking to herself out loud. That would be interesting here, wouldn't it, if we could put little loudspeakers on what you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing, really, she just happened to say it out loud. And uh, I don't think, I don't know if she knew I was in the room, there was a kind of partition there, and it was afternoon and there was a little break in the schedule for her <coughs> and I, I won't say her name I'll just pretend she's called Mary except it's not a very Dutch name and I heard her kind of come in the room and then I heard her say what shall we do now dear sweetest Mary child they have this little ending of their words in what they use a lot of languages do in Dutch which is a j it's like a little bit, it's a diminutive of sweet one, little one. What shall we do now, my dear, sweet Mary And it f was very tender, very beautiful. You know, if you said it at the bus stop, somebody might think you were nuts. But really, how do you talk to yourself? How do you talk to yourself? And I looked up deer in the dictionary. I like to see the etymology. And normally, you know, you can learn something from where it comes from and how the word's put together. It can really stimulate the interest in the, and the investigation to something real. And I was very fascinated to find that the word deer, and if you feel into it, why are we deer? Where does that come from? It said, the ultimate origin unknown. <laughs> and my heart loved that. It's like, oh, yes. That's about the word, but the deer, the deer that you are, the deer that we are, this beloved that we don't often recognize, we often overlook, we're searching for that love somewhere, often, it's ultimate origin unknown. We prefer to like to know the causes and the origins. But how about there's no even reason? There's no even source. It's an unknown. This dear that we are, that you are. It's even better, isn't it? Because if we're a dear because we've done something good or a dear because we're approved of. or But here's a dear just because you're here. So I <clears throat> would like to begin uh, with a little exercise. And I just want you to check where you are with this. You can... I'm going to ask a couple of questions. All right. But just see how it is, where you want to respond from. You may want to be really silent. You may want to write and use the articulation through the pen. Just see what feels appropriate. So feel free to use the notebooks if you like. <clears throat> can be a really can be a really helpful way to hear what we what views we're holding. So probably you would. I imagine all agree that it, there is a wisdom in holding yourself dear. 
as well as the love in holding yourself dear. That's a given, I would say, or else you wouldn't have signed up for this retreat. <coughs> it's not just about holding ourselves dear, but that's what I'm looking at tonight. However, we don't always hold ourselves dear. Either because we overlook ourselves, we can be really cruel to ourselves, really unkind, through judgment, through hatred, through through ways that we look at ourselves and hold ourselves. And the first question is a little weird kind of question. It's pointing and asking us to look at why we have an allegiance to not holding ourselves dear. That's not the question yet. But it's that, what is that? Why is our allegiance very often to not holding ourselves dear? So the question you can use, I'll give you a a minute or so, if you want to use the pen or just see what comes. Neither is better or worse. The important thing is you stay close to yourself, right? First question is, what's right? about not holding yourself dear. So this isn't speaking to the wise part of you that knows it's a really good idea. Those views, opinions, you know, there used to be an insult in, when I was a teenager, somebody, they'd go, that you'd say to something like, God, he really loves himself. Right, like that was really awful. You know, what are we afraid of? What do we think would happen? So the first question, what's right about not holding yourself dear? What's right? Like, what would happen? What do you feel might happen if you really held yourself as the beloved one? Afraid you'd get selfish? Afraid you'd never go to work again. Afraid no one would love you. Let's see what comes. And they may be some things you see over the days, you know, that when we're not holding ourselves in kind regard, actually. And that doesn't always have to be effusive or even have a feeling with it, necessarily. But when we're not holding ourselves in kind regard, there's usually some kind of views and opinions that are going on. And you might start to see those clearer over the days. Second question, if you like to reflect, um, what hinders you from holding yourself dear? Like, what's in the way? What hinders you from holding yourself dear? Excuse me. That's even an interesting thing with uh, involuntarily bodily sounds. I remember one student of mine, she said she couldn't sit in the meditation hall. She she had a lot of stomach gurgling and um, all kinds of intestinal sounds, just normal range, you know, the way they do that. And it brought so much um, projected judgment, firstly, that the, of what the others would say, and so much self-hatred. So much self-hatred. Okay. And have a couple of breaths and sense into either 
the possibility or the the body memory or um, your faith or whatever it is in the way you can hold yourself dear because obviously to get this far along in practice you've had to hold yourself and there will have been moments when you're holding yourself dear so the question is what's it like right now to hold yourself dear and sense in take your time with that what's it like right now maybe you're not well, that's fine But to open to that trajectory, what's it like right now to hold yourself dear? Does it feel like? What does it not feel like? Are you expecting it to look like something in particular? What is it like to hold yourself dear? <coughs> Anybody want to say what it's like to hold yourself dear? And there's not a prescribed right way here. It's like, what's it like for you right now to hold yourself dear? Anybody? Might be a word or a sound or what's it like to hold yourself dear? Feels like an understanding. Ah, uh -huh. interesting. There's a feeling sometimes that goes with understanding something, right? Think of understanding up here, but there's a sense with it, yeah. Tender. You can sense the tenderness. Mm -hmm. Feels good. Feels good, yeah. Sometimes the love is tender and sometimes it feels good, yeah. There's something surprising about it, like I'm not doing it, but it's like my being's doing it. How about that? <laughs> yes, yes, it's more primary, actually, than any doing. It's a, one teacher calls it the emissary of emptiness. Right. It's like a messenger. We have the flavor of the, the non-doing, the ease and the peace. It's like dissolving as well. You can sense the dissolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's dissolving, Rose? Right now, or what are you sensing is dissolving? Boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things about love, it seems. Nourishing, nurturing. Okay, so it has those qualities the nurturing, nourishing, the, the food in it. It's like, mm. Food for the heart. Don't worry if you're not holding yourself dear right now, because we'll get to that part. Yes? Yeah. Sort of two elements um, for me. One is being like a mother to myself. Yeah. <clears throat> which is a feeling of care. Mm -hmm. And the other is like being the child that's being mothered, which is the right, So it's that whole, that whole unit, the resting and the caring. Yeah, beautiful. Really um, centered, kind of around the heart, just through my whole body, and just giving myself loads of space, it's like holding a space around me. Create, like, yeah, creating a space for mm -hmm. myself. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So, wanna use the. The language we sometimes use in the teachings around, you know, in our mindfulness practice and our insight practice, we can use the word very often, a looking, you know, you look at experience, um, you see something, right? You know that language from practice. Um, 
and just explore that a little bit in, in relation to this theme. So I was thinking about the relationship of loving ourselves, holding ourselves dear, and self-respect. It's a kind of respecting in it. And I heard recently a friend gave a Dharma talk, um, and she talked about respect, or one of the ways of understanding that word that her teacher worked with her with. Spect coming from like spectacles, like the looking, right? And the respect is looking again. It's looking again. So there's something about respect where we're not just happy, satisfied with our first gaze, which is often not what Isla was talking about, the primary gaze, which is actually the more, more true, more, more deeper, but that we're often looking from the secondary, which is all our lenses and our history and our habits and... So to look again is the first look. In the first look, the habitual first look, we're often looking at things, others, ourselves, objects, etc., anything internally, externally. We're often looking through those lenses. And it depends what lenses we've got on in that moment. Normal kinds of lenses when we're looking at things are the lens of... Um, there's a number of ways of wording it. I think Rob mentioned one of these this morning. We're looking for what's wrong with me, either in ourself or in the eyes of the other, right? I'm looking for what's wrong with me. That's how the gaze goes. They also, there can be a habitual gaze, maybe some of you recognize as well. Actually, back to the first one. We're looking for that, and then, as Rob mentioned, the perception is almost trained to pick that up, and then we'll see it. You see, there is something wrong with me, and they think there is too. I can see it. Right? Primed for that. Another habitual lens, which doesn't at first glance feel as problematic, but is, is looking for what's great about me and what's better about me than you. Have you ever done that? <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting in a retreat once. You know, we really get stripped down. You kind of get pulling out the dregs of consciousness in a way. It's like, okay, who's got the best haircut then? <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, it's so t it's so boring, isn't it? It's like trying to grade people on haircut. I was just a long time ago. Um, it's so tedious, really, our mind in in these habitual gazes, but. You know, and if we hang out with our own mind long enough, it's pulling up the dregs here. Please give me some kind of definition in relationship to everybody else. At least I got a better haircut, you know. It's like, oh, okay, that satisfies the soul, doesn't it? <laughs> not, not really. Right. So what's better about me than the other? And then, you know, the sort of more grandiose self-images. And then there's also... What helps make me the same as everybody else? Like, how can I how can I look for parity, uh, leveling? How can I make myself normal? As Rob was talking about, do we really want to try and circumscribe ourselves? Not that we have to be unnormal, not making that a virtue, but any way of defining ourselves as somewhere to fix and hold and make home is going to feel so limited. Worse than, less than, better than, same as. And the Buddha, in his brilliance, is so simple but so brilliant, where he talked about the conceit of thinking that we're better than someone. Right, that's how we normally use conceit in English. He also talked about the conceit of thinking we're less than someone. And he also talked about the conceit of thinking we're the same as someone. What happens when I say that? Where does it, where does it leave you? Like, stunned? Or like, where, where, which one am I then? Because from the normal way of looking, we have to be one of those. 
right? And he's inviting something very radical, actually, of which love is a huge part of letting that understanding come through. And we can talk more about that. those. I mean, it's quite beautiful. It sort of stuns the mind, in a way. Of um, There's no way you can land in your conceiving of yourself, actually. So how does this fit with love? <coughs> From... One great Tibetan teacher, he said, the supreme method to become quickly at home with our deepest nature is through love and compassion. The supreme method to become quickly at home with our deepest nature is through love and compassion. Sometimes we can have an attitude that the metta part, the love part, the kindness part is some kind of little side dish to the wisdom. That any of you, maybe you didn't get that imbibed in your dharma growing up. Or maybe you did. I did. That love is somehow a little side-ish. It's very nice. and But it's not. It's completely woven and linked with the deepest understanding. So how about then respect the looking again the looking again, the first look, not the primary look, but the habitual look, is got lenses. So the respect is look again. Respect. Look again. Look again. Let those lenses be seen, the ones that we habitually carry, and see again. You don't even have to look out. You can see again. When we look again, maybe you can check it out right now if you like. You can gaze with your eyes open or closed at anything you like. <coughs> the fact is that it's Rob and I that are in front of you. So, um, but you know, you can look at the Buddha, the Kuan Yin, someone else, the walls, anything. It's the looking again, looking also at yourself. Often the language of looking at in our practice can make us a little removed. We're looking at, we're observing from a distance, it seems. And that might be a necessary stage to be able to unhook. It's a real, it can feel like a real liberation to be able to start to look at experience. It can be a bit of a relief when we've been embroiled in it. But the looking at can be sterile. It can lose the juice. It can lose the love. It can make us a little removed, untouchable. And the love is something that makes us very available. So if I sense in right now to this invitation to look again, to respect, immediately... What I notice is, um, actually right now, what I notice is a, kind of a humbling, kind of a humbling of the, re of the, <clears throat> the respect doesn't assume that I know everything about myself or about you. I'm looking again. It's a necessary condition that I'm not assuming I know everything, because as soon as I believe I know everything and how things are, I'm in the habitual gazes, whatever my 
particular conditioned ones are. But to gaze upon myself with not knowing exactly the whole story here. Yes, I have my story, but to look again at what's arising here right now. The quality of respect, that, like the bowing, the bowing to ourself, to another, to the Buddha, to the tree, to the dustbin, to the plates. It's like, feel the gesture. You don't have to do it, but feel the gesture is something that helps us look again. Really look again. And it's the looking then not just from the eyes, there's the eyes that see, there's the heart that can start to see and feel as well. Looking again. It gives time for the heart to catch up and for the body to sense what it might be to respect everything. Starting at home with ourselves. It's a nice quote I liked. I don't read this very often, but I like it a lot. From Dove Bear of Mesricht. He says, when you gaze at an object, you bring blessing to it. For through contemplation, you know that it is absolutely nothing without the divinity that permeates it. By means of this awareness, you draw greater vitality to that object from the divine source of life. Since you bind that thing to absolutely nothing, the origin of all. On the other hand, if you look at that object as a separate thing, by your look, that thing is cut off from its divine root and vitality. You look at an object as a separate thing, which is often what we're doing with things. We, we look with this sort of observing mentality. We're cutting it off. We're cutting ourselves off. We're looking at ourselves in such a way that we're missing the point. We're missing the, what is very primary about our manifestation here. So we can practice um, respect for ourselves even if we don't feel it. Sometimes we can be in contact, this respect, this can be natural. We can open the door for ourselves and say, or not say, my dear, come through. We can put our socks on in the morning with a tenderness and an appreciation, as if we were dressing. You know, you can try it here. We can take it as a practice. How do I put my socks on? Am I holding myself dear, or is it like, right, right, on to the next thing? The other day, actually, I was with my mum on Friday, and she's 88, and um, she's got all kinds of things with her legs going on, and she has to wear these very strong, tight support stockings, really hard to get on if you've ever been worked with old people really hard to get on so there's a special machine for getting them on this blue thing with she has to put the stocking on the thing and then it's got these prods in it and this blue thing and and then she has to get up so I, I went in and I saw her and I said I'll give you a hand and she says yeah well I normally have to do it on my own anyway I said okay she goes okay you can give me a hand so I gave her a hand and feeling her leg and the oldness of it and the veins in it and the, the shininess now well, there's no hair left on it anymore and the, those legs those legs and I pulled it up and it was really hard work but it was very easy in that particular moment to care right sometimes easier if we think of the elderly or a baby or right how would it be to apply that to ourselves? What kind of care as you go to the toilet? It's really mundane. This isn't an esoteric pra practice, actually. It's very mundane. Maintaining careful self-regard day and night. 
it's where our mindfulness is completely infused and inseparable from the heart, actually, which is really its true function, really where it comes from. How would it be to remember also that, you know, very often we are overlooking ourself and the current, I don't know for how long this has been going on, this sort of reification or the obsession with the, the love relationship, beautiful as it can be, the intimate relationship, the long-term relationship, beautiful as it can be to really actually consider where is the real long-term relationship happening? It's here. This is the one who's going to be hanging out with you till you die. This is the one. This is the one who knows you. We could say, I'm kind of putting it in poetic language. This is the one who knows you deeply. Actually. Who, if we give her a chance, has a lot of care and love for herself, for himself. It may be a different than a tender resonance. It may be the respect of the honoured guest. You know, treating yourself as the honoured guest. Welcome. Welcome to the feast. Welcome to lunch. Welcome to the porridge. You know, it really has that more kind of noble, majestic aspect to the respect. Play with it. Hold yourself. Find out who you are, actually. However, it's all very lovely, and it is very lovely. It's not always straightforward. We can have a lot of issues with love and kindness, and I mentioned a couple at the beginning of the way we might feel like we're going to melt or be eaten or overwhelmed or I'll just speak briefly I hope briefly about this um, anybody ambivalent about love or is it really clear not I think so, it's not everyone some people it's very clear that they're not ambivalent some people it's very clear that they want it some people it's they're clear that they don't and some people are more in a push-pull I want it, I don't, I want it, I don't. And if we're doing that externally, we're likely also to be doing it internally as well. Check it out. One of the other issues that's well documented in the tradition with metta practice is the far enemy, of course. The far enemy is aversion and hatred that is seemingly very opposite. Um, however, meta practice can have a remarkable capacity and, and it's not a mistake that actually it can start to get attracted. We can start to see the aversion and the hatred more clearly, actually through meta practice. Not for everyone, not all the time, but if this arises, it's very relevant part of the... Um, it's, it's, it's natural. Far enemy, meaning there's a near enemy, which is something that looks like meta but isn't, and that's a kind of more uh, how's it described? Attached. Yes, attached love. So it looks like I'm loving, but actually I'm clinging. That's a near. So enemy is used in the sense of it's not the real thing. I think. Yeah. Maybe I can clarify that later, I'll have to think about it. So the um, hatred, sometimes there can arise in the presence of even talking about love or goodness or all of these qualities, a real distaste for that. That may or may not be arising for you. You may or may not know that from your life. Um, does it ring any bells? For you? I don't need to go there if it's... Uh, it's not actually up for you. Recognize it. 
Well, you don't have to make it there if it ain't. I've always got a bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So it might be, I'll just name it because it might be something you recognize along the way. And if it comes up, it doesn't mean something is wrong or missing in your practice. So, um, one of my students also put it, she said that she noticed, and she knows she's very dedicated and caring and all the rest of it, she noticed as she went deeper in her practice, a phenomena would arise uh, where she would be, she said it was often on the bus, and she would see a mother and a baby together and in a tender embrace or a something very close like that. And she said it brought up incredible hatred in her, right? And she was exploring that and working with that and seeing what arose. So sometimes it can be the wish to destroy the good, the lovely, the true, the beautiful. Right? So if that arises, you're not wrong. It's dukkha. It's absolutely dukkha but it can be seen and held within the same respect, the same regard. Often what happens for many of us when those very difficult states arise, the regard goes away. The respect for ourselves goes away. It's like, how can I be loving if this arises? And we make a split. Right? I remember actually, um, you know, if you think of a little child... As there, I remember a friend, a little three-year-old, and the parent, our friends with the parents, we were out somewhere, and a little three-year-old was running around, and she wasn't allowed to get what she wanted in that moment or something, and she said, I hate you, mummy! All right, and I thought, oh, what's going to happen here? I was curious, thinking, oh, it could be many things happen here. could be she gets punished, admonished, judged, withdrawn from something stony happens, all kinds of possibilities. And that is often what happens. And we do it to ourselves. That's the point. We do it to ourselves. We think, we're still thinking in categories, you know. I remember the guys where I, on the buses growing up, where love was on one side and hate was on the other. Mm-hmm. There's four spaces. you just got the right amount of spaces there, as if they're opposites. And that's what we're doing inside. We don't really believe that the love is something that can withstand, that can hold, that continues, that is stronger, actually, deeper, much more primary and real. We're still thinking it of it in terms of the love as separate from the hate. All right? But the love, as Isla was speaking about, that love, that, that regard, that respect, that that holding ourselves dear is a holding that can withstand as we're going through our days. All of those, sometimes it can be very delicate things, it can be very strong things that arise, that the regard does not have to go away. Often it will, and you'll see that there'll be a discontinuity of our love and respect and holding of ourselves in some way. And we get into the story and we're blaming someone else or we're blaming ourselves, you know how that goes. But it's actually very radical to start to explore and recognize the strength, the power, the tenderness, the continuity that can withstand. And I remember then this, the mother and the father, I was, it was a little suspended moment. It's like, oh, I wasn't used to seeing how parents might handle that. And uh, what I noticed, they didn't say a whole lot, but they stay, really stayed there. They're, sometimes the presence can be withdrawn. You know that feeling? You withdraw your presence from yourself or from someone else. It's like something closes up. The presence stayed. You could feel they were still there. Sometimes then, if for ourselves, if we bring it back to this location, something difficult can arise. Let's say it's aversion, hatred. And then it's, oh my God, I've got to do something about it. I've got to do something about it. I shouldn't have it. 
right? Some urgency arises, like it, it mustn't be here. What I saw them do, they weren't, there wasn't an urgency. They were holding a bigger picture. They were holding, which it's easier to do when it's kids, right? They were holding a bigger picture. They knew it was dukkha. They knew that this thing was impermanent also. They knew that it would arise and pass. They didn't latch onto it going, oh my goodness, we've got one of those daughters. Actually, they were quite relaxed, but they really stayed there. They also knew it was not self. It wasn't about them in the end. And the next thing I saw, right, I had that little moment, I hate you, mummy, and then, whoop, there she was, oh, hi, mummy, right, it's, it's seen, it's understood, not by her, she's not by her yet, but the holding field, right, which we are now, that capacity of the awareness to stay with ourselves, whatever shows up on this cushion, in those corridors, in the dining room, in the work period, any of it. So that the love isn't something that's just the opposite. It's something that is beyond the dualities, actually. Sometimes another issue that can arise in holding ourselves dear is as we start to feel that we are holding ourselves dear, we may start to doubt or to mistrust it. Thoughts might arise like, oh, this is all very well, loving myself in Devon, in a nice warm room with nice people. What about the real world? What about what's happening in Egypt? Is this really something that could withstand? Is this really something real enough? And there's a way that we don't trust it. Can be. Again, just see if it, if it arises for you. Just putting it on the map in case it does. Not trusting it in the sense of this... Almost like um, a cynical kind of... Um, a cynical... Like, this isn't the real thing. This isn't the real thing. You know, where, where, where's this love when I'm struggling, when I'm suffering? Where was it? We kind of mistrust it. <coughs> Again, you don't have to look out for this if it's not there. You might see it along the way as another formation, as something else that can be seen and held in our practice of seeing clearly. other things. I'm actually thinking maybe it's enough for tonight. There's lots more. We have almost three weeks together. Um, I'll just sit for a moment and see if there's any last piece. So let's come back together to this theme of holding yourself dear. Gazing upon yourself with respect, actually, as if you could bow to yourself. 
internally. This one whose ultimate origin is unknown, this dear, this dear one. beloved one. This one that's brought you to this retreat, sometimes in spite of ourselves, who clearly cares a lot, actually, to get this far. And this holding ourselves dear has a lot of room in it. It has room for really recognizing what kind we are. And what I mean by that is the more we hang out with ourself, we see all kinds of things come and go, don't you, in your mind? I mean, everything. If you hang out long enough, it all comes and goes. And there's room for it all, actually, without us being defined by any of it. And the more we meet, have the kindness to meet those difficulties. So one example I think of is um, a little story. long time ago, I, had, I went to look after my um, brother's child while they were having another one. They had a couple, and then there was another one soon after. So there was a little one who was one and a half or something. And um, they were within the parents, my brother and his wife, with the new baby upstairs, and this not so much bigger baby woke up at, at, as often one and a half year olds do, crack of dawn, five o'clock or something. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give them a break. I'll take him. And um, so I went down to the kitchen with him, hoping I was I was trying to be a good sister which was a bit of a mistake from that. It was a lovely intention, beautiful intention, but I had a self-image as well. So I'm going to be the good sister. It's like trying to be the good meditator, which is a beautiful intention, but if it's a self-image, it's another kind of dukkha. Right? So I went down to the kitchen with this little boy, and um, he didn't really want me. He wanted his daddy. Right? Daddy! Daddy calling, calling his real yearning and, and, you know, all of what he had to go through and having a new sibling and all that. And then, okay, but I want to be a good sister. I want to be a good meditator. I want to be a good sister, right? Let's try and make this situation different. Have you ever done that with yourself when you're sitting? Shouldn't be this experience. It should be another. Let's see what I can do. So, distracted him a little bit. And then he said, ah, cornflakes. Want cornflakes? Want to get the cornflakes? Pour them in the bowl. Maybe if you've had kids, you know how this goes. Put the milk on. This will this will do it. This will do it. Don't want cornflakes. Don't want cornflakes. Push them away. Kind of fall on the floor. Oh, ah, feel my reaction. Oh, but you said you wanted cornflakes. Can't remember. <laughs> if do, please, you said you wanted to be on retreat. Why, why are you complaining? <laughs> you signed up. It's not about rationalizing. Oh, okay, there's the one who wants. Uh huh, I recognize that. Yeah, there's the one who doesn't want. Uh huh, uh huh. Okay, distract him, take him to the tap. And the restlessness. It's like after a while I realize, oh my god, he's having a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> oh. God, do you know how painful that is to have a multiple hindrance attack on retreat? If you haven't had one yet, maybe you don't need to, but, you know, there's the aversion and there's the desire and the restlessness and the sleepiness and the doubt. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. And But recognizing it was something else entirely. Recognizing it, oh my God, this is suffering. Not, it's just suffering for me, and I've got to stay a good sister and keep him away from my brother. 
But this is Dukkha, and then the heart kind of softened a little bit, and I saw my own self-image there of trying to make it a certain way. All right. So here, how it applies to the meditation of, yeah, all of those things might arise. We can also hold the bigger picture, the bigger picture there of understanding. Yes, yeah, dukkha. It's impermanent if we take our hands off and hold ourselves with respect for taking our seat. These things can be seen, can be recognized, and do not actually derail us from our path. We don't have to reify them and make more of them, but we can meet ourselves in kindness there. And the, the upshot there was I let go of trying to be the good sister, which is beautiful intention, but it meant I got tight. You know, if you've tried to be the good meditator, you can get tight. Conditions have to be a certain way. I could really hear him. He wanted his daddy. And we hung out. It's okay. Take you to daddy. I relaxed. He relaxed. We got up the stairs and did something else for a bit and later went to see his dad. But... Ah... <sighs> Recognizing that which recognizes is not is not bound actually, and yet can intimately meet what shows up. So I'm going to finish with a little piece here. I hope. Ah, here it is. This is um. Uh, an extract from the diary of Raymond Carver, who was a poet, famous poet of this century still. And it's the last entry in his diary before he died, the last time he could write, actually. And he knew he was dying. He died of cancer, I believe. And this is his last entry, and it said... And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. So let's sit for a minute together. Because, <clears throat> because you hold yourself dear, you maintain careful self-regard both day and night.
So let's. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.